Hello and welcome to the Good Friends of Jackson Elias, a regular podcast about Call of Cthulhu, horror films and horror gaming in general. I'm Paul Fricker. I'm Scott Dolwood. And I'm Matt Sanderson. And this episode we're looking at the role that investigator organisations play in Call of Cthulhu. Before we get into all that good stuff, however, what is going on? Well, it's coming close to that time again. By the end of June 2021, issue number seven of the Blasphemous Tome fanzine should be out. So this is the fanzine that we create for all our Patreon backers. And if you want to know more, just go to patreon.com slash Jackson Elias. Which is also linked to from our main website, blasphemoustomes.com. And this issue will feature a brand new scenario from our very own Matt Sanderson. And you said that this one is getting tropical. Is that right? Yeah, I'm looking at a setting in the Bahamas. In particular, as I like to work in as many real-world details as possible, off a small little place called Conception Island. You and Conception, Matt. What is this? <laughs> Just for context, people. Matt used to be a regular attendee at a games convention on the south coast of England called Conception. Mm. Happy coincidence that I found an island in the middle of nowhere that's not populated that just so happens to be called Conception Island. Inconceivable. I'm pleased to be joined by Christopher McLaughlin, author of Transgressive Horror, a book about, uh, well, what is the book about, uh, Christopher? You should tell us. Well, hello, and thank you for having me on the show. Uh, the book is a collection of 29 essays by the uh, 28 best authors I could find, plus me. And uh, it revolves around the general theme of horror films that in some way broke a rule. They either created a whole new set of genre rules rewrote past genre rules or did something atypical for what is a, which is a wonderful genre I've loved my whole life, but can be a bit predictable. In fact, I really, I mean, you know, isn't one of the things we love about, about horror films is some of them will just completely seriously unnerve you in real life and others are more like comfort food. Oh yeah, totally. Like, like Kong versus Godzilla, you know exactly what you're getting and that's the whole reason you want to see it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, very much. I mean, this is the cornerstone of our show, which is why I was uh, pleased to have you on. Thank you. Now, um, it's it's in Kickstarter as we speak, isn't it? Yes, indeed. Well, this is my this is my second one. I did I did one for a uh, tabletop role playing game supplement, and uh, that was a sort of a you know a, dipping a toe in the water. And I was pleased to find that there was more of a market for things that I write than I ever would have guessed. I, I honestly thought it'd be me and like my mom contributing. <laughs> and when we actually funded, I got, I got a little braver, a little bolder. And uh, like everybody else on the planet, COVID set my grand scheme back a bit. But, but now that, you know, vaccines are rolling out and things like that, it, it seemed the time to give it a shot and take a chance on something like this. I'm hoping that it will it will be something new for my imprint, Go Show Press, and uh, will allow us to do a series of these. We say, if you've seen our mock-up cover, we sort of optimistically have volume one on this. 
Right. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And I'm hoping we can come back and do sci-fi and examine some other things because I I love this group of writers so much. I mean, I, I can honestly say this is a book I would buy if I weren't publishing it. It really comes across that you've got a real passion for this. Now, can I ask when does the Kickstarter finish? Do you have that to your fingertips? Yes. Uh, we are going to finish up. We got another 19 days to go, so that would be Thursday, May 27th, 4:21 Eastern Daylight Time. So we've got another 19 days to go on this. Okay. Yeah, thank you very much, Christopher. And we'll put a link in the show notes to the Kickstarter. So uh, please head on over there. And best of luck with the Kickstarter. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. And keep up the great work on the show. I'm looking forward to seeing what you get, what you guys, what you guys come up with next. And, and hopefully maybe we can have a longer chat someday, maybe about volume two. All right. And now the main topic, Investigator Organisations. Well, the Call of Cthulhu 7th edition Investigator Handbook contains an entire chapter about investigator organisations, and you'll see references to them now or chapters about them in a number of other publications. But what are investigator organisations? What role do they play in the game? What problems do they solve? And how can we make interesting use of them in our own games? So an investigator organisation, I mean, it is what it says on the tin, really. It is a way of getting a group of investigators together to investigate what's going on in the scenario. But the key thing is there is it's a way of getting them together and keeping them together. Because for a one-shot Call of Cthulhu adventure, it's quite easy to have a, a reason why a particular group of individuals, they might be pre-generated characters or whatever, come together to deal with this situation but then if they survive if they go on to a subsequent <laughs> scenario why why would they do that they've resolved that situation why would they carry on because they all happen to be good friends of jackson elias well there's an investigator <laughs> organization already matt <laughs> you're talking about in the campaign or the podcast i don't think we've gone public about our secret battles against the mythos have we yes so yeah it's a way of providing a, motivation, and B, kind of a continuity, I think. It certainly helps not having to think of, oh, so why would my random haberdasher jump on the Orient Express to Constantinople and get involved with this group of miscreants that are heading down the train line? Or world hopping from New York to London to Cairo or any of the other big campaigns where you have a lot of travelling and then some really... At times, complicated mental gymnastics trying to work out how the hell do I justify getting my random pleb involved in this? Because I've been thinking about the Orient Express. You are like an investigator organisation. You might be a disparate group that come together for whatever reason. What actually was it that tied the characters together, Matt? You're all asked by Professor Smith to basically put the simulacrum back together and that there are groups racing to get this thing together before you. But why are you chosen by him? You end up going to one of his lectures and that he then calls upon you afterwards after he's been attacked. So that's kind of the formation of an organisation, if you want to call it that, isn't it? It's the formation of a group that weren't a group before, but now they are a group. Yeah, and I think we do have that in a few campaigns. We have sort of these ad hoc groups that come together. I mean, Masks of Nyarlathotep does that as well, as you said, with the good friends of Jackson Elias. Sorry, I was just thinking on what Matt said about you're an express group. You've come together to do this thing. And like with Masks, the same thing. You become this group, mm. and that's fine because you are like a little group then, and you're going off to do this 
mission in inverted commas. You're going off to investigate this case. I guess the difference between them and an investigator organisation is that if somebody dies in that group, it's hard then to sort of think, well, why would somebody else join? Mm. Because they are just those four, five, six player characters. Didn't you see the other 20 lurking in the background in Professor <laughs> Smith's bedroom while he was giving his soliloquy? <laughs> yes. This is what the organisation gives us, isn't it? Hmm. I guess there's two ways to look at that. If you have an organisation that comes together in a campaign like that, you could formalise it to some extent. Uh, you could, I guess, look at it as a source of funding of material resource, perhaps handling recruitment of new personnel. If you have a sort of administrative part. But if it is made up entirely just of those player characters that come together, then, yeah, you're right, that's probably not really an investigator organisation. Mm. That's an investigator group, yeah. which is a different thing. So an organisation has got a members and a structure, maybe quite a loose structure, but some sort of organisation or bigger group outside the player character group. I think that's the key thing, isn't it? Yes. So there are other individuals beyond the player character group that are existing in the world. So you've sort of answered this question a little bit already, but let's drill down into it more. What problems potentially do investigator organisations solve in a campaign? Working out how to get your random PC into the flow of events without having to s sit down and think for goddamn hours, how the hell am I going to suddenly find a motivation to go ahead and deal with this rather than just suddenly out of the blue going, hey, I'm your new replacement PC, get me in the party. There's definitely an element of that. I'd say there's also the logistics side of it. As I said before, administration and financing because if you've got a global campaign people buying tickets to trot around the world needing accommodation needing to buy weapons perhaps bribing people then unless you have a group of independently wealthy investigators who have either large savings or inherited wealth then it's also beggaring belief a bit they'll be able to drop everything, run around the world for a year and not go bankrupt. Mm. I've often had that experience of playing the game and then thinking, well, if you are playing, as Call of Cthulhu does, relatively normal occupations quite often, as we talked about in the occupations episode, if you are, I don't know why we fixated on Lumberjack. That was a bizarre <laughs> one. I think that was my fault. They're okay. But if you are a solicitor or just a regular job or a supermarket cashier or whatever you've got to go to work tomorrow haven't you or mm -hmm. you've got a few days off but you know you've got to go to work on monday but you're investigating a call of cthulhu thing that takes precedent over everything else but so having a, an investigator organization as you say scott not only perhaps gives you the resources to get equipment and so on but it also perhaps gives you a reason and a way out of your normal nine-to-five job that is kind of credible? I'm not adverse to saying things like, yeah, you are going to be going on a world-hopping adventure to make it realistic that A, you can physically do it, and B, that your lifestyle will accommodate that. You have to have a credit rating at a minimum level. Yep. Certain mm. occupations will fit, certain occupations will not fit. And I have no problem setting those criteria. But I'd say 
An investigatory organisation then obviates the need for that, or at least allows a lot more flexibility in the types of characters you can play. Let's say, for example, that you decide that it would be really useful to have an ex-soldier or a private investigator along as muscle, or to keep the rest of the party safe. To say to the players that your character has to be, say, XSAS and independently wealthy in order to qualify to come along. I mean, that's dictating a very rigid character concept that may not be what the player wants to play. So, how do we decide if we're either players or a keeper whether a campaign that we're running, whether it's a published campaign or something we're writing ourselves, would work better with an investigator organisation. Yeah, I was reading through um, the chapter in the Investigator's Handbook, which, if I recall correctly, Mike took quite a bit of lead on this part. Yeah, on page 124, it opens up with players should take responsibility for designing a group concept. So, you know, I think it is, where possible... Because you want the players buy into the game, you want the players to be on board. It always, I think it always comes better with player character concepts and so on in terms of getting them invested in the game if the ideas come from them. So my suggestion would be the keeper gives a brief overview, a bit like Matt said, actually, guys, this probably is going to be a world-spanning adventure. The investigators wouldn't know that, but the players can be told that. Mm. So they can sort of have that in mind when they're creating their characters. And then you need to come up with a, an investigator group, which is going to tie you all together. What might that be? And then they can sort of make some suggestions. The keepers can sort of say, well, actually, you know, adjust it a bit in this direction or that direction so that it's going to fit the campaign better. Yep, great. Okay, now let's start. I think also a flag to the keeper to maybe prompt the players to think of an organisation is how lethal is this campaign? <laughs> Something like masks where you're going to have a very low body count and no one's really going to die until the very end. Yeah, haha. That That's evidently a campaign where you're going to need framework. But then compare it to, say, another campaign. At least they all are fairly deadly, aren't they? Yes. I say Beyond the Mountains of Madness, where that's uh, that presents mm. a different issue anyway. That's kind of already got an organisation inbuilt to it that you're all members yeah. of the expedition. Mm. That doesn't need anything extra on top of that. The campaign gives you everything you need. And another campaign does that, Matt. We don't want to give spoilers, but Two-Headed Serpent also has an investigator organisation in it, of which you are a member as a player character. And you get to design a player character. It's pretty open. I mean, it's a pulp campaign, so obviously your characters are different to regular Call of Cthulhu characters. But you get some guidance on what kind of character to create and, you know, you just sort of fit into that organisation, hmm. don't you? I can see there's scope for either approach. If you as a keeper have got a strong campaign premise in mind that would work best with a particular investigator organisation, either one that has been published in another book or one that you've come up with yourself, I don't think there's anything wrong with presenting that to the players and sort of saying, OK, for this, you're all members of this group. Does that sound OK to you? On the other hand, then what he was saying, having the players come up and with a, an investigator organisation and getting the buy-in there and so on, that's really cool too. I, I think they're both perfectly valid approaches. Yeah, I think it very much comes out of the writing of the campaign. With Two Edit Serpent, it was very much inbuilt that given that situation they start in, it was kind of a bespoke 
investigator organization for that uh, mm. whereas some other campaigns like masks you could be much more flexible on different groups that might participate in that with um cold fire within which i've got experience with as a player as we're still playing that there is a investigator organization presented in the book but for our group that's running it because we're running it through into the darkness where they've already built over the course of several previous adventures an investigator organization they've substituted the one that they've created the arcane society which has backgrounds in hmm. miskatonic and so on rather than using the one in the campaign but it still fits so there's no reason to say that cool. you can't tweak what's in there and have to use the option that's presented We've got to the stage where we know that the campaign is going to involve an investigator organization. So both for the starting investigators and probably more importantly for the investigators that follow once those ones go mad or die, how do they get involved? I like the idea of them just suddenly spawning right next to the dead PC that they just appear. (laughs) (laughs) In terms of joining the organization, I think... You just do. You just sort of Mm. say we're this organization and my character is part of that organization. I mean, I guess if somebody came up with a character that seemed really inappropriate to the organization, then there'd be a discussion. But yeah, I think once you've got the organization and you defined it, people create their characters accordingly and there are going to be various different types of members and i think also some groups will much more closely define the membership Mm. so if they're you know ex-military as with the wipers pals in the book then obviously they're all of that kind of ex-military type or they're associated whereas if they are of the ratchet's children or whatever it's called the group that have been in a psychiatric unit then yes they're all going to have had some history of mental illness but they're all going to be potentially of, of all different walks of life so they could be you know they could be anybody that's been through that experience and also even where you do have a prescribed investigator group like the wipers pals i think that's a really good example so in the investigator handbook these are all people who shared an experience in world war one who brought in the same battle who all had the same weird experience there and have banded together since then but i mean let's say that you use those as the basis for a campaign and at some point they need specialist help maybe they need someone who has done research into the occult or someone who is a skilled cat burglar to try to break in to a particular place and they don't necessarily have the skills within the organization to do that i mean there's nothing stopping the organization from reaching out to and hiring a specialist who wouldn't necessarily fit within that organization now whether that character is just going to be there temporarily for that mission or whether they end up becoming an ongoing part of the organization i guess you could play by ear but it doesn't have to be that rigidly defined i like the idea of having one organization go to another organization to Mm. hire their members almost like a uh a device you used in a game of primetime adventures the mooks recruitment agency (laughs) oh yes they could indeed work as a nice investigator organized or meta organization in their own right Yeah, I think my example wasn't very good, actually, because I said people who've been through psychiatric hospital or people who've been through the war, they could kind of been anybody 
previous yeah, to going to the true. war, couldn't they? Yeah. So it's just a, an episode in their life that has defined them to some extent and, and tied them together to some degree. So it's a, a shared experience. You know, thinking about this before, perhaps a, one differentiation that could be drawn between the groups is those that are self-selecting, mm. you know, people go along and join the group, or those that select their members, like the SOE, the Special Operations Executive, which yeah. I thought were an outstanding investigator organization that featured in World War Cthulhu that you worked on, Scott. Yeah. We talked about this at the time, but just if I may just briefly recap. Mm. So they were a special small teams that would be sent into occupied Europe behind enemy lines. And they were small groups of like just a few people. It was like mm. the perfect role playing game thing they were they were small groups of like say four or five people that would be sent on an adventure essentially yeah it was uh pretty much kind of james bond style adventures i mean it wasn't right but it was some of it sort of sounds a bit like it on the surface i mean so we did a lot of different things and yes it wasn't all groups of people it was sometimes just lone spies but mm. for the kinds of things you're talking about yeah exactly i mean it was mixtures of skills it was people who were highly trained to do particular things they were given particular missions and a lot of latitude in how to approach them so, yeah, I mean, it, it was absolutely perfect for a role-playing game. And they would pick a disparate group of people, wouldn't they? Individuals for different skills. I mean, they were certainly specialists and also a wide variety of people in terms of nationality. Mm. If I remember correctly, most of the SOE was made up of women for operating behind enemy lines as spies and so on. They decided that women would be much better suited to operating under the radar like that yeah i mean if they were blokes they'd be questioned why weren't they in the forces mm. perhaps obviously an investigator organization the core mission of it is to investigate or fight or combat the mythos whatever the angle that they've got but does that always have to be a sort of secret mission is an investigator organization always going to be like some kind of secret operation or group something that has to operate in the shadows i think it depends on the context of the story like caduceus in two-edged serpent isn't secret they have a public face but they operate on a different level behind the scenes i mean i think part of fighting the mythos is suppressing the mythos and suppressing knowledge of the mythos so I don't think an anti-mythos group is going to advertise the fact that it fights the mythos hmm. counterproductive so that means pretty much every investigator organization has got to behave in, I guess, a somewhat shady way. Like I say, either by operating from the shadows or by presenting themselves as something other than they are. Thinking about this, I was sort of thinking about well, what ties groups together in the real world. Mm. So you have groups of people that fight against climate change or, or things like that, and that's mm. that's the enemy. Whereas if you were fighting against deep ones, they'd be the enemy, right? But you don't keep climate change a secret. You try and unite people against that thing. So yeah, really, why do keep mythos stuff a secret? One of the differences there is that melting ice caps don't inflict sanity loss when you see them. Well, that's debatable, but <laughs> yes. well, in comparison to something like a deep one or seeing Cthulhu. Yeah. Mm. And I was also about to say the big difference is that people wouldn't believe in deep ones. But then again, I think people not believing in climate <laughs> changes. <laughs> yeah. So I'll retract that one. Yeah. 
Yeah. But I guess one way of looking at it would be if you're thinking in terms of climate activists, a typical investigator organization would probably be more like eco-terrorists because they are operating under the radar, they're taking direct action, they're trying not necessarily to advertise what they do. Maybe every now and then they're doing stuff as a publicity stunt, but in terms of acts of sabotage and so on, yeah, a lot of that, the goal is not to get caught, not to be seen doing what you're doing. Hmm. Just make me think, though, it might be actually a good change or palate cleanser to build an investigator organization which is deliberately trying to wake people up to say, mm. hey, look, these are the threats that are out yeah. there, yeah. and then see what pushback they get. Yeah, because if you did that in a contemporary setting, you would just end up coming across as one of any number of conspiracy theory groups <laughs> on the internet. How would you differentiate a genuine investigator organization like that from, say, David Icke or QAnon? I was going to say you call it CAnon yeah. rather than QAnon. But. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, totally. David Icke was the man who sprang to mind there. I mean, it's if you do start telling people about, you know, there are fish people out there <laughs> they are going to take over the world. Okay, well, let's try that, you know. See how far we get? Well, I remember Bobby Fischer used to phone up conspiracy theorists who had radio programs, phone in radio programs, and tell them stories about secret government programs to produce human fish hybrids, these sort of deep one type things who were being created by the military. So, yeah, you'd sound just like that. <laughs> Yeah. Or the crazy guy who calls up coast to coast AM in the small hours of the morning and tells them about that alien burrito that they've got rolled up in the back of their van. <laughs> yes. There's a whole load of crazy people out there that can easily stifle any well-meaning investigator's attempt to try and save the world by bringing in the knowledge of the mythos to them. But I think that would actually be a really interesting investigator organization, someone just trying to raise awareness of the existential threat of the mythos. You'd certainly get a lot of new members, some mm. of whom were there for the right reason and some of whom were there for the wrong reason. When you say some of them are there for the wrong reason, you mean most of them, don't you? <laughs> yeah, probably, yeah, yeah. I want to play that game now. <laughs> Then you've got an investigator organization that is involved in a campaign. They've, they've hit heavy casualties. They're very much on the losing side at the moment. What is it that keeps them going? Obsession. Internal propaganda telling them, that, no, these people haven't died. They've just gone on a long sea voyage. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I think it's obsession. Because I don't think you're in it for the money. I think, think about people who, I mean not investigating the mythos in the real world, but who do mm. similar things in the real world. So think about people who are investigating cases either journalistically or, you know, in law enforcement or, you know, as private individuals who are sort of going out and investigating wrongdoing or, you know, w whatever it is. They're investigating some sort of case like in the previous episode I referenced, the Zodiac Killer and so on. And you've got a journalist who just becomes obsessed with it and, and, and it goes on for years. I think it's obsession. I don't think it's enough for it to be money because I think I don't think people work for money through obsession in mm. the face of the kind of adversity that they'd be facing here. I think you can be obsessed with finding answers. I think you can be, you know, like to a mystery, solving something, you know, or getting information like scientific, you know, endeavors. 
I think you can be obsessed with beating somebody, having a rival who you just become obsessed. I was thinking back to a couple of episodes that we did last year for our backers. Joe Exotic mm. and um, his nemesis, whose name escapes me. Carol Baskin. Carol Baskin. Just become obsessed with each other pretty much go to their graves in that struggle against each other so I, I don't think it's ever just purely financial and if it is just that you're employed by an organization if you are coming up against the horrors of the mythos it's got to be more than just money keeping you in the deal yeah because you're going to run a mile well either that or you do accept the fact that every now and then you'll get an investigator who just say fuck this for a game of soldiers and run away because maybe they were hired maybe they thought yeah okay this sounds like a lark then they see everyone around them get eaten by a shoggoth and think no 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 don't want this no which seems entirely reasonable and also Let's say you do have an investigator organisation like that that is driven by obsession, that has faced this attrition, that has faced absolute horrors, and just keeps going. If you're looking at it as an organisation that recruits people to keep its numbers going, by the time it's got to that stage, who in their right minds would want to join a group like that? Some very broken people to begin with. Well, I think people who share that, I mean, I'm going to come back to that term, obsession, really, I think, mm. who wanted to fight for their country's independence in a war or something like that. It's an overwhelming thing that is greater than life or death, and you're just going to lay your life down in that struggle. And if it's against the mythos, that's what, you know, perhaps you've, you've lost someone, perhaps you've literally lost somebody and you don't know where they are. It just becomes an obsession. You're not going to stop until you find them or, or whatever. I think you've got to sort of find that in your character to give you that motivation of, of, of some way. There's also, going back to another aspect of World War Cthulhu, having a look at the Cold War line instead, not every member of mm. SIS wanted to be there. You may have been coerced mm. to be a member of it. You might yeah. not be a willing member of the organisation. Good point. Yeah, very good point. And even beyond coercion, you might have been tricked into it as well. Maybe the investigator organisation hasn't presented the honest facts of what they're doing and you've been brought into this fight and perhaps you thought you were doing something else and you're suddenly there in the deep end fighting for survival. But if you are going to set up that deception, that trick the organization of conduit into this that's a great one i like it but what happens when the reveal is shown mm. and the player characters learn that because if they just learn oh we're being tricked oh well let's just fuck off and leave then that's not really going to work is it you need a second layer that either they're hooked into it by then or that you know they form their own organization to battle against the original organization i mean that's great i think you just need to have a you know, when you peel the top layer off, there needs to be another layer underneath. It has to have, as you say, something that then prompts action rather than just saying, oh, goodbye then, and walking away. Yeah. Okay, well, now we're creating an investigator organisation for our campaign, either as players or as a keeper. What kind of inspiration might we look to for creating this organisation? Well, funnily enough... As I was reading through the chapter again on investigator organisations, a few things sort of jumped into my mind. And again, harking back to some of those backer specials we did last year, we touched on the one Don't Fuck With Cat. Yes. The Netflix documentary yes. about a group of people on social media who see a crime being committed, a bit of animal cruelty 
being committed and they flock together to try and investigate what the hell this video was. It's only like a minute long. But there are little clues in the video, not, not purposeful ones, but like, you know, down to like light switches and a vacuum cleaner and things like this. Things that seem very innocuous and unidentifiable. But actually with a, a kind of a hive mind, a very small hive mind on the internet, you know, a relatively small group of people, I mean, that, that linked together, they were able to pull their resources and actually over a time sort of investigate this person so i think that's a, an interesting modern day group that you could have the group that they had that they could draw on was a few hundred members but there was a like a real core of just a few of them a handful who did mm. most of the investigation so that's a comparatively small group if you wanted to have something much larger along the same lines there's anonymous you don't hear much about them anymore, but they were that hacking group or online activist group that kind of grew out of 4chan before 4chan became, well, what it is now. They took all sorts of interesting direct action against, for example, the Church of Scientology. It's not difficult to see something like that as a Cthulhu investigator organization. All right, maybe not taking mm. on the Church of Scientology, but taking on the Starry Wisdom Church or something like that. I think they were just acting through their resources on the internet, right? They did arrange a lot of stuff in person, demonstrations. Did and, they? Oh, yeah. Yeah. This was when the whole thing about wearing those Guy Fawkes masks from V for Vendetta became a thing because oh, yeah. they used to yeah. wear those to disguise their identity when they'd go out and protest the Church of Scientology just so they couldn't be identified. Was that the occupation movement, the Occupy movement? It was kind of linked it was around that time though, right? Yeah, the Occupy movement was something different. I'm sure there was an overlap between membership, but they were very different things mm. politically. But certainly using that for a modern day group, social media, something that links these people together on a an internet forum or social media page. And, you know, they talk about it. And if it becomes like that obsessive thing and there's a common aim and they identify a goal, then, you know, I can definitely see them getting together in person, a small group of them. You've got a big pool of people, potentially as big as you want. You only want like, four, five, six of them in a Call of Cthulhu adventure. Mm. And if one of those goes missing, you've easily got more to draw upon. Yeah, how about you, Matt? Any that occur to you? Yeah, I mean, I was thinking about an experience I had uh, it was way back at a continuum years ago, where I think it was Giles Hill was running a game of Delta Green that was set in Vietnam. And in that, I remember it was, you played soldiers that were going into a village and once the clear-up operation had taken place there was just this jeep sat on the outskirts of town where you saw evidently the cia mook sat there watching proceedings from afar and it was revealed later on in the course of play that it was a delta green operative that was there and thinking well maybe there's a way to use investigator organizations without the investigators themselves actually being direct members but acting for mm. that organization's goals and mm. having a flick through the options that were presented in the book the investigator handbook i found i actually come up with something phenomenally similar to strange but true thinking back to the likes of the gaslight era and also going into the 1920s you had the rise of the major news agencies uh, the likes of associated mm. press reuters and so on 
and thought, well, people in that position were usually the first, particularly with Reuters, they got their reputation as being the first to report on certain major instances because they had people everywhere and that they could help then spread news to newspapers that they got syndication with and so on around the world. You look back to the story, The Call of Cthulhu, and you had these lots of news clippings from all over the world that when you put them together started showing this bigger Mm. picture. What if you've got this group of people that work in something like a news agency at that time? Well, one of the very few people that would have access to such stories from all over the world and then start piecing all this stuff together. And that in their position, they go, well, yeah, we're probably not going to be effective enough to take on this problem directly but we might know the people who are, they then, like your anonymous group, could potentially then start dropping this information to the right people in the right circumstance to then uh, basically push them to the forefront to go and do the job for you, aka the player characters. So they're kind of like the source of information. Yeah, that maybe this anonymous benefactor behind the scenes, maybe they don't even reveal necessarily who they are, but they effectively select the people to get involved to combat this threat based on the information they have about what's going on and the information they have about any of the investigators out there. So if you are really mm. stuck for an idea of, well, my character really doesn't quite fit this group, it could be, no, you have the skill set that's useful here and they have come to you rather than you've gone to them. Hmm. You could even spin it slightly differently. So instead of the news gathering organizations, you also had clipping services at the time who would come through newspapers and other magazines for items of interest to particular clients and clip them and put together dossiers and send those off so the clients could be informed. So what if you had an organization that sort of operated within a clipping service, but every time they encountered something that was coming together to a pattern of weirdness, would sort of do what you said, but sort of think, right, who would be the best person to deal with this? Put that dossier together and just send it to them. So you've got, say, a police detective or something like that, or private detective, who just suddenly starts receiving envelopes with apparently all these disparate news stories and perhaps writes it off as a crank, first of all, and then just starts piecing it all together. Mm -hmm. So who's the player character in that? scenario the police officer i wonder whether you could actually make it playable that you were on the other end Hmm. that would be a challenge well you do the research and then you just you send other people on the adventure yeah (laughs) wait to see what happens (laughs) it's not quite we call the police it's we call the investigators yeah yeah Yeah. that'd be good actually i'll just sit with my dice behind my screen and roll to see what happens scott and then i'll tell you (laughs) But no, I was thinking in terms of playing the sort of masterminds of that, of trying to Mm. identify the right people to get the right information to and just sort of set up the dominoes to fall. And it would be a very different kind of game. But Mm. I think you might be able to do something like that. And it puts me in mind of there was a comic about 20 years ago called Global Frequency. And the basic premise of it is that there is this former intelligence operative who has put together this network of a thousand different people across the world and given them these special private satellite phones. Basically, every time that there is some kind of existential threat or 
weird problem that ordinary authorities can't deal with. She goes through her contacts amongst these thousand people, just picks out the right ones and just sort of says, right, you, 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 here is the problem, deal with it. And these people might be researchers, they might be journalists, they might be ex-military, they might be intelligence operatives, Mm. they might be scientists. It depends on what the problem is. And then what does the comic pick up on it works on both levels so it it is sort of partly the behind the scenes coordination of it all but it's also each issue is a particular problem that comes up and this group of different people who've come together to deal with that problem in a game you'd need that to be the player characters wouldn't you otherwise you that'd be off screen it wouldn't be in the comic if i was to structure a game using that kind of level of having these shadowy figures in the background sending out messages i can also see that it would work with them being the player characters in that instance where the people they are trying to work against aka your various definitions of cultists out there suddenly find that the pesky investigator that went to try and screw their plans up and that they promptly got rid of received this package that they have then tracked back to you and then it almost becomes like a uh, Mm. kind of war in the shadows then between them and the cult they're actively trying to work against and what happens if then multiple cults that this investigator organization have targeted start banding together when they realize they've got a common enemy and i can really see this going in a kind of espionage thriller direction which again would make for quite a different game and also this puts me in mind of a totally different game ars magica which had the troop style play whereby you had it's not an investigator organization it's a covenant which is a doesn't have to be a building but we had like a wizard's tower and each player has a as a wizard a magus and perhaps a companion character who's kind of like a a more not a magical character but a sort of like a, a leader of troops or a an astrologer or you know something something sort of notable and then at the bottom level there are grogs who are like just hack and slash fighters and archers and so on and they're there to to be the shield to the wizards but the game sort of takes the premise that the wizards are the powerful ones so the cool thing that we could kind of parallel take from that is that you've got this organization they don't all have to go on every adventure so you can have a pool of adventures Mm. and sort of say you know there's some of them that hardly ever leave the office but sometimes you might play a game with those guys but now, actually, now we need some to go investigate that, I don't know, secret bunker in uh, South America or whatever. And we don't want to send the investigator guys who have been doing the paperwork. Let's send the other guys who are also part of the association, but they're, you know, they're more outward bounds types. So you could have a pool of characters and they come back and they share knowledge and some get kind of semi-retired. They're injured or whatever, perhaps, or they spend some time in a institution but then they come out and they remain part of the society or they remain a you know a consultant or whatever they get taken care of Mm. and also a mix and match approach is required so you potentially have five former sas members going to this bunker to try to take control of it but they need to make sense of what they find there, so they also have to take Gary from IT with them. <laughs> yeah, I like having the group that stay behind. That occasionally, they just your whole life revolves around this office, and occasionally you get crates full of really weird artifacts come in. It's then always like an attrition of investigators. Well, what does this thing do if I do? Ah! <laughs> Now, there's a great potential investigator organization, which is Mythos Artifact Research and Development. Yes, the top men that get sent those crates <laughs> in oh, that God, warehouse. Yes. Yeah. 
what are we going to do with this thing? Let's just put this in a crate and wheel it down in this big warehouse and put it up on a high shelf and never open it again. Well, that pretty much is the premise of that TV series, Warehouse 13. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> the kind of a mythos version of Warehouse 13 could be quite fun. I'm also somewhat remiss in having talked about Ars Magica and then it, the penny dropped with me. I should have been talking about Rivers of London because it's basically the same. You've got the folly, which is like a covenant, and you've literally got like X, well, maybe not SAS people, but X military people on call as well. So that's very much a, a parallel to that. So with these organisations that we've talked about that we might be putting together, who actually runs them? I think the traditional thing in a, a lot of Call of Cthulhu games is that the investigators are hired by NPCs or they're joining this existing organization and so on. But we've sort of touched upon what if they're the ones behind the scenes, what if they are the ones running them? What are the options there? What kind of games are we looking at if the investigators are the ones running the organization? I was flippantly thinking that wouldn't it be great if every single investigator organization in the world was all being controlled by Neartholotep <laughs> or they're just being thrown at each other just to see what shit hits the fan. <laughs> oh, God, yes. I think that thing of the investigators being hired by a third party is, I don't know, has a very 1980s feel to me. Mm. I don't see any problem with the investigators running the organization. I think it, it really depends on the the nature of the organization it might be something that the player characters they are the only let's say you got five players they might be the only five people in the organization and they're perhaps they are trying to recruit a few more and they might recruit some npcs or whatever as, as they occur in the game or it might be that you know there's an outside group it might be that it's a sort of tiered organization and they never actually meet the people who are in charge yeah there's all sorts of possibilities here aren't there or it could be a reversal of what you normally expect, where the people in the back room are effectively the employees, that you've got the investigators mm. who are the people out in the field who have basically hired others to be their support organization to handle the administration of the money and the recruitment and so on while they go out and fight evil. Well, indeed. I mean, if Elon Musk, rather than wanting to travel to Mars... If he had experienced a mythos encounter and decided to put his millions into fighting the mythos, but not tell people, maybe maybe that, that's what he's doing. <laughs> maybe he is. You know, I said, oh, you know, if, but perhaps, you know, who knows? But, you know, if you did have a billionaire, yeah, what could they do against the mythos? They could hire lots of people and they could hire the investigator group and not tell them. So, yeah, actually, that could work. Or alternatively, if they wanted to be front-facing, you've got Batman. <laughs> yes, indeed. We've touched upon some of the investigator organisations that have been created and published in either the Investigator Handbook or other places. Are there any particular ones that we're drawn to or we like or any ones that we might have created ourselves in any of these books that we particularly like? I like Strange But True, but that's because I'm always drawn towards mm. playing journalists, kind of occupational hazard of studying journalism, that it's always a great premise for asking questions and poking your nose in where it's not wanted, which is a great trait for an investigator to have. Yeah, yeah. 
certainly when I was putting together the Flotsam and Jetsam campaign for the organized play program for Chaosium, they were the organization that I was drawn to. They formed the backbone of Flotsam and Jetsam for just that reason. I just, I loved the fact that they're not just a journalistic outfit, but they're a less than reputable one <laughs> that they publish tabloid stories, they publish fanciful stuff, but it is just, well, strange but true. It's not bullshit. So they claim. And yeah, that, that really appealed to me. So actually, I guess that sort of answers the question we were talking about earlier, which is what does an investigator organization that is perhaps trying to get the truth about the mythos out there look like? Because I mean, as it's written, strange but true doesn't 100% do that. It, it does hide some of the things that it finds for public safety. But at the same time, it is, I guess, trying to get knowledge of that stuff out there. And also... The strange but true, they're not actually going to know the true bit, are they? They're going to get some insight into what's going on and then they're going to elaborate on it. They're not going to get a 100% correct perspective on, you know, what the Deep Ones are up to or what Nalathotep's up to or whatever. They, they see a little bit of it and then extrapolate from that. I can see one of their headlines being, interview with a fish man, and then seeing, uh, yeah. seeing exactly <laughs> how much bullshit the Deep One has spun them. <laughs> I was thinking about other scenarios and Blackwater Creek as a one of the options for that is a, a group of gangsters mm. that are going in. And then, um, you know, having rewatched The Wire recently and, and things like that, you sort of think, well, if you were part of a criminal organization, we were talking about being tricked or compelled to stay in. You know, think about The Godfather, think about all those mafia type organizations, the Sopranos and so on. Once you're in those, you can't get out. It's not very easy to get out. You know, you get out with a bullet in the back of the head, maybe, or the concrete boots. You can kind of be compelled to stay in, in that world somehow. And also, a lot of investigator organizations, by merit of the things that they have to do to fight the mythos, engage in an awful lot of criminal behavior, whether that's breaking and entering arson, murder, whatever it is. They do crime all the time. If you have an organisation that's starting off as a criminal organisation, they've got the skills. Mm. Yeah, that'd be pretty cool, actually. Yeah, they're used to colouring outside the lines. Yeah. I remember when we were doing World War Cthulhu London, you and I, Paul, we put together a bunch of investigator organisations for the, the London book. And one of the ones we put together was exactly that. In London at the time, there were all sorts of gangs that were forming, largely out of black market trade, but also the fact that it was a boom time for crime for various reasons. One of the organisations we put together there was just this group of up-and-coming gangsters who had found out that some of their rivals or some of the things that they were encountering were even more dangerous potentially than the bombs that were falling on London and had decided to take it into their own hands to deal with them because what are they going to do? Go to the police? <laughs> I mean, I suppose here we are perhaps broaching on things that might work for a scenario or two, perhaps not ongoing, but, you know, who knows? If it was a turf war between a drug gang and there's some other, you know, mythos cult sort of encroaching on their turf, then I can see that as the premise for a, a scenario or a short campaign. Once that situation is then resolved, one way or the other, what do you get that gang to do next? Is there <laughs> another turf war? 
<laughs> Sorry, I'm um, just imagining this turf war between this street gang who's been making their money by selling black tar heroin, and they're suddenly being edged out by this new gang that's come in from somewhere unknown that's selling black lotus extract. Exactly. Or you've got the local evangelical church who are, you know, fighting the new esoteric order of Dagon that have moved in up the road. Oh, yeah. That would be an ecumenical matter. <laughs> but I guess it does make the point that an investigator organisation, it can just be a premise for, I guess, maybe just a scenario. It doesn't have mm. to be something world-spanning and something that's going to go from scenario to scenario loads. It can just be the premise for a, even a one-shot, perhaps. But I think as long as you have that organisation there, if the players are invested in it, if their characters survive, or if enough of them survive, that they're happy recruiting others, and that investigator group has now got a mission, then hmm. it's very natural and organic for that to then spin out into something ongoing, even if that wasn't the goal in the first yeah. place. Yeah, at the end of the day, I think that's the bottom line, isn't it? It's, it's about finding a motivation mm. for your player characters and a bond between them. And this is what the investigator organisations provide. But that doesn't mean that they're always healthy organisations to belong to. There was a group that I created for World War Cthulhu London called the Rat Catchers. They're still one of the things that I've created that I'm happiest with who are basically this classic group of 1920s Call of Cthulhu investigators who banded together in London in the 20s because they realised there were ghouls under London and made it their mission to try to wipe out the ghouls. We're now in 1941. They've been going at it for the best part of 20 years. They've got older, they've got harder, most of their numbers have died, they've been wounded, they've been driven insane, and they are now at least as dangerous to encounter for ordinary people as the ghouls are. They are ruthless, they are paranoid, and for ordinary investigators encountering them, or even worse, being recruited by them, they're going to be as terrifying as any Bithos monster they might encounter. I would say a great one from media is Supernatural. Mm. Albeit, you know, mostly we see the two brothers, but they are part of an organisation. What are they called? There's the Loose Network of Hunters, but there's also the Men of Letters in there as well, which mm. is much more of a classic investigator organisation. And they are definitely messed up with some of their practices. Yeah. yeah. Ending up with a two-man enter, one-man leave part of the kind of audition process. Yeah. That's an interesting aspect to explore with the ongoing investigator organisations, which is what have they had to do, what have they had to become in order to survive for this long? And what is it going to be like for new recruits to come in? Because they may have started out with the best intentions. They may have started out trying to save the world. But what moral compromises they made on the way? What kind of monsters they become in the process? And just going back to, you know, thinking about that and going back to the question early on about why don't they just publicize what they do? I mean, I don't know why I didn't think of this at the time. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I've paralleled it with like the climate change. Well, the, the, the mountain icebergs don't come around while you're in bed at night and like kill you. Yes. Whereas if you start advertising the fact that you're fighting the mythos, that's quite likely to happen. 
Yeah, I mean, that's definitely there in the source material. If you go back to the Call of Cthulhu, just finding out yeah, that the Cthulhu totally. cult exists is pretty much giving yourself a death sentence. Then you say you run into that issue of making the PC a martyr. Would they potentially go after them, or would they try to wage a more subtle type of attack, like discrediting them or destroying mm, their life, yeah. and then making them self-destruct? They get knocked on the head by some papers falling from an attic window. Oh, you know, those reams of paper <laughs> are deadly. Thank you. Thank you. You're listening to The Good Friends of Jackson Elias. You can find show notes for this episode at blasphemoustomes.com, where you'll also find all our social media links. We have t-shirts and other merchandising available at our Redbubble store. If you're enjoying this show, please consider backing us at patreon.com forward slash Jackson Elias. Thank you for listening. Well... Like a mysterious and ruthless group of Cthulhu investigators, we have gathered here as a group to thank you. To thank you, first of all, for listening to this podcast, and to thank everyone who has ever backed us on Patreon. And we have a number of new people to induct into our ranks and thank by name. Yep, starting off with a big thanks to Michael Lesnowski. And also thanks to Johan England. And thanks very much to Jamie Spradlin. And thanks to Hank Marshall. And thank you very much to Peter Taylor. And thank you to Tyler DeForest. Thanks to Neil Bradbury. Hey, a great one here. Also, thank you very much to Tentacle underscore Eyes. Ah. <laughs> ah, and thank you very much to Dexter Ward. That's one word. <laughs> and thank you to Chexmix22. And thank you very much to Jeffrey Young. And thank you very much to ICN. If you do want to join the Good Friends of Jackson Elias investigator organisation and start investigating the mythos, just send us a stamped address envelope and we'll we'll send you the manual. Or alternatively, I'd suggest going to our Patreon page, actually. I mean, you can do that. One of them might be less dangerous to your health. Send your application to Scott, not me. He's the mastermind of the organisation. You don't think that the blasphemous tome is just a fanzine, do you? I mean, we have been putting all that secret information there that I'm sure only the right people are decoding. I was hoping that people would have come up with the fact that that all was there by themselves. Now you've just gone and told them. Spoilers. It's like Zodiac all over again now. Okay, well, I think let's wrap up the madness there. And until next time, it's a goodbye from me. Cheerio from me. And a farewell from me. Blasphemous Tomes.com mm-hmm.